0: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak, your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, DC. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with national security expert, Michael Allen, who serves as the managing director and partner at Beacon Global Strategies. They discuss the ongoing war in Israel, the renewed struggle against global terrorism, and how America's national security and defense posture is affected by this conflict. Michael Allen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're doing a special Reaganism episode focusing on the Gaza war. It's a dynamic situation there. But of course, today, you're a managing director of Beacon Global Strategies in Washington, D.C. But when you served in government, you had two really unique roles, which I think offer our listeners and viewers great insight into what is happening on the ground and how uh, the White House uh, and the U.S. government more broadly be looking at this. You were the Staff Director of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and also you served as Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Counterproliferation Strategy on George W. Bush's National Security Council staff. Michael, just let's jump into it. Give me your take on the Netanyahu government's objective of destroying Hamas. Uh, Does that strike you as the right objective? And talk about uh, the level of difficulty in realizing it.
1: Roger, thanks so much. I think that it is a worthy objection, but it's going to be very hard to achieve. For the reasons that you've heard so much on cable news and elsewhere this week about it being a dense population They'll surely be in uh, improvised explosive devices, booby traps, and the rest. So it'll be very hard, I think, over time. The Netanyahu, Netanyahu government will have to sort of define what success means. But I do think there are things that they can go ahead and start doing, and that's the principles of counterterrorism assaulting, that which we have more or less perfected through our years in Afghanistan and Iraq, that I think they should begin with before they go in full-scale invasion with tanks and infantrymen on every corner.
0: And what would be some of those things? Obviously, the Netanyahu government and IDF has spoken specifically about the Hamas military leadership and political leadership, uh, that they want to uh, essentially decapitate the organization. Is that what you have in mind, or you think about uh, other aspects of counterterrorism? Well, decapitation is definitely part of it, but one of the lessons from Iraq
1: was something they called the virtuous cycle of intelligence. And it basically was find, fix, and action a particular terrorism target, exploit any intelligence you might find there, analyze it, and figure out the next place to hit. What kind of places are we looking for? Obviously, we're looking for places where they might hold hostages, but we're also looking for command and control headquarters, perhaps the factories where they make all of these missiles, so uh, safe houses as well. So there's all sorts of things that the Israelis can do to move forward. I think when we talk about counterterrorism operations, it's also very intelligence-driven. The Israelis, for as many faults as they Um, have been faulted for for the intelligence failure that led to this assault. They still have good human intelligence sources, I think. I know they have great signals intelligence sourcing. So I think they'll run a type of operation to be able to find, fix, and deliver ordnance or assault teams onto particular targets. That's the way they ought to proceed for the next, I think, first few weeks, rather than trying to just roll in with tanks and do an
0: enormous invasion. Uh, Talk a little bit more about developing intelligence. I think you, as you mentioned earlier, when you watch the 24-hour news chatter, there's a lot of this. It's a really difficult picture. Intelligence is great, densely populated, all these challenges that you have in Gaza. And and. and clear right now, there's a lot of intelligence to collect and a lot that we don't know. But from your experience seeing this inside the White House and also from the perch of the intelligence community, you've written a book about intelligence reform. Um, How quickly could that intelligence picture populate if you prioritize it? In other words, because you're interrogating, because you're collecting, because you're dedicating all the assets, my assumption is, but validate that or disagree, is that a picture that may seem uh, blurry or, or 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 not much there can quickly uh, come into high relief. Is that correct? Is that what you're yeah. getting
1: at? Well, yeah, you're on to something, too. I mean, let's first remember that the Israelis aren't starting from zero, that many of these Hamas leaders, they at least know their name. They probably have a SIGINT picture. They probably have imagery on each of them. Certainly, I've read that some of the planners of the particular assault from last Saturday were among those that were traded for Shalit the Israeli. and so if we had them, if the Israelis had, These individuals, they certainly interrogated them many, many times, and I'm certain they've gone back to some of the interrogation summaries. They're trying to build a file on each person. They're probably going through and trying to establish every name that they ever learned from a Hamas prisoner. And from there, they're able to sort of build out what we might have called a horse blanket, an enormous piece of paper, if you will, that has a name and has what are the most likely connections that that person has in his his or her network. Certainly a signals intelligence, a digital trail between individuals. But also, you're able to use this sort of horse blanket approach to figure out the relationships between dozens of different people, overlay that with what we might have in terms of imagery or mapping or places where we've heard a probable factory or hostage site may be. And pretty soon, you at least have begun to develop a target set pretty quickly. I think that's the way they're going to go for some period of time. Of course, the other part of this, in addition to all the intelligence assets you want to use, is that I think they want to use special operators who can go in quietly to try and action some of these particular targets. So they find, fix, and deliver a particular ordinance and then take more intel and keep going.
0: So you got the intelligence assets, the human intelligence components, which of course, special operators can contribute to. You mentioned a couple of times, Michael, uh, hostages. And of course, uh, reportedly, there are just about 200 hostages total being held in Gaza. Uh, There are, we think about 13 Americans unaccounted for. We expect our our hostages in Gaza as well. Of course, to 30 Americans who were killed on Hamas's attack. Talk a little bit about the United States' posture uh, towards the hostages you were in the National Security Council. How is a president and his staff responding? I mean, this is the largest number of hostages we've had, I believe, since uh, we had hostages in Tehran. Uh, So this is not just Israel's problem, this is the United States' problem. These are US citizens we're talking about. Give me a sense of what you think the posture is in, in, in the White House and what it should be. Yes,
1: I think that the United States, just like Israel, just like almost all democracies, values human life to the utmost. And I think we um, are trying to analyze as close as we can where these hostages are. Can we go in there first? Is it a a, a target that is achievable? Are we able to get to a particular location and action the target? But it, it is obviously something that's very, very difficult for planners because we're so seriously concerned that Hamas will murder these terrorists, uh, murder our hostages as we come in to try and rescue them. So it is probably one of the more difficult types of raids that I can think of, one that is fraught with peril, um, but its success can only be driven, I think, if we have a p- particular advantage in terms of intelligence, because we or the Israelis, depending on who's going in, need the element of surprise in order to succeed.
0: Talk about the intelligence cooperation between the United States and Israel. You just had the formulation: whether it's we're going in, with the Israelis. My sense is, uh, Israel and the Israeli Defense Forces. I mean, they've got their plate is full. You know, they're not only worried about uh, hostages, but they have to. Carrying out the the campaign right now, air campaign, ground campaign, they have the build up, they've mobilized, and of course they want to make sure that the second front doesn't open up. But if it does open up, uh, their advantage. Of course, they are talking about Lebanon. You got all those things. It would seem to me that the intelligence cooperation uh, between Israel and the United States is critical and as possible. Israel is going to need to kind of support the U.S. if we're gonna do anything on the hostages, it's gonna be harder uh, to expect Israel to, to to address this with everything else it has to do.
1: So I think that the United States and Israel have complementary intelligence capabilities in this particular area. They're closer to the target, whereas I think we, like them, also have the types of assets that you'll need. Satellites from overhead, we would have more drones, we may have more of a capability to tap into phone lines that they may not have been able to access around the globe. So I think that we can work closely. Luckily, there's a precedent for this between the United States and Israel. We have worked incredibly closely, hand in glove, on the intelligence around the Iran nuclear file for many, many years It's my understanding that we share all aspects of the intelligence regarding the nuclear program in Iran. If we don't already do as much as it pertains to counterterrorism, I think that we have turned the spigots on in the last week and that we are sharing as much as humanly possible. Of course, we have a different sort of threat proposition between the United States and Israel. Israel's right there, so I think Israel has run greater risks to have better sources in places like Gaza, notwithstanding the intelligence failure we know, but I still think they have the ability to get in Gaza easier than we do. That goes for Tehran and the other paymasters and planners of this organization um, than the United States, who's so many miles away and other otherwise worried about more You know, terrorists that could hit us in the continental United States. But nonetheless, I think we can work well together, tactical, strategic, folks on the ground, put the right kind of platforms in, the cutting edge type of platforms, think drones, where we can get real eyes, constant 24 7 on top of the situation, put in cameras, put in the types of human sources that we need and begin. Now, look, intelligence, as we say, isn't 100 percent or else it would be called information. It's the best (laughs) we can do. It's a decision advantage. You're trying to decrease the amount of uncertainty that a particular policymaker may have in his or her hands. But I think together with the United States and Israel and maybe others that we can begin to sand down grind down uh, grind down some of the uncertainty and work more closely together
0: you know, Israel is now within the area of responsibility for Central Command. It used to be under European command. I got to expect, given Central Command's experience in counterterrorism operations hosting it, uh, we have two carrier groups, one there, one on is underway uh, to the Eastern Med. What does that mean in terms of military capability that we'll be able to bring up there, and how does that uh, impact the ability of the United States to support Israel, uh, of, of the sorts of things that you've been discussing?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, you know, many of our intelligence platforms are military planes. Those have been, you know, simply the types of rivet joint signals intelligence type planes that we could fly in the Mediterranean Sea to get a bigger, a better bead on what's going on in the Gaza Strip. Some of our fighter jets now are so sophisticated I've heard people joke that they're more of an intelligence platform with some bombs hanging off of it rather than vice versa. So, all of these assets, the more forces you bring into the region are more, still more support for our armed forces, for the decision makers in the United States and Israel. So, I'm excited. I'm glad. I'm thankful that we're able to surge in these types of resources because the Israelis certainly need them. And then to the degree that the United States is going to assist on any hostage rescue or get into a situation where Israel may need us to go against Hezbollah in the region. I'm glad we're there and put this intelligence resources to work.
0: Let's move on to that point. We have Michael Allen with us. He's managing director of Beacon Global Strategies in Washington, DC, former director of the house permanent select committee on intelligence and a special assistant to the president, George W. Bush on the National Security Council staff and author on intelligence reform book called Blinking Red. Get it on Amazon. I believe they still have a few available there. Uh, you mentioned Hezbollah, Michael. This seems to be one of the issues that Vivi Netanyahu and his government is trying to manage. Clearly, Secretary Blinken has been in Israel, President of the United States will be in Israel. They are trying to deter Hezbollah from opening a second front. Uh, Everything seems to turn on this ground invasion Uh, and the United States, the president's team has said that if Hezbollah opens a second front, the United States will be open to and will use uh, force uh, to. uh, To counter any Hezbollah attack, does that surprise you? I was a little surprised
1: at the news this afternoon that seemed to indicate that the United States was discussing very seriously intervening in a possible second front if Hezbollah were to attack Israel in big numbers. But upon reflection, it makes sense. Our aim is deterrence. That's the reason we have the aircraft carriers and the strike groups um, in the Mediterranean Sea. I think that article is very likely yet another message to the Iranian regime, which is, don't even try to activate Hezbollah to go against the state of Israel at this particular moment, because you will awake the superpower, and we will get involved. So I think it is an expression of deterrence, not to say I don't believe the Biden administration, But I think, I hope this will send a very strong message to Iran that if you escalate any further, we can take this in places you do not want to go.
0: Well, Michael, let's wrap up this uh, quick conversation um, Reaganism episode focusing on the Gaza war and zoom out to uh, the geopolitical picture. You write about this regularly, you comment on it on TV regularly. Hamas, Hezbollah, you get to Iran. Iran is a patron of both, $100 million, you're estimated, in support to Hamas. Of course, Hezbollah's military capability, some of the most sophisticated missiles, for example, they come from Iran. Iran, of course, has been the key supplier to Russia, arguably their most effective uh, military tactic. Uh, the Shahid UAVs that are, have been penetrating Ukrainian airspace and taken out uh, civilian uh, targets. Iran, without a doubt, is a player that's having a geopolitical impact uh, in the Middle East, of course, as always, and also in Europe. Tell us how you link it all together uh, in terms of this emerging axis you could connect between Iran, Russia, and, of course, Russia, China, where there are no limits relationship.
1: Well, you know, we talk so often with this fancy term, revisionist powers, but it basically means authoritarian leaders who want to rewrite. The status quo, and go back to some status quo ante, where in Israel's case the Jews didn't have a homeland in Israel, or where in the Chinese case the Taiwan belongs with China, in mainland China as one country, and of course the Russian Empire, the Putin, of course, wants to make sure that is as strong as possible. I think we have seen the resurgence of geopolitics. It's as plain as day. It makes us a little bit unhappy for those of us who want to solely try and deter China from taking over Taiwan and then Asia. But the United States is a superpower. The United States is the arsenal of democracy. It's time for the United States to stand tall with our allies in each of the three key regions of the world. The Middle East I didn't have on my card is something that Biden would have to deal with in such a way a few months back, but he does need to deal with it. I'm hopeful that the United States Congress will step up soon for a sort of Stand Tall America Act and fund all of our friends and all of these particular regions, in addition to some funds for border security. I just think it's part and parcel of where we are today, and if the United States takes a holiday from any one region, I think we begin to lose the region, and there will be an enormous amount of instability, which is not in our interest.
0: Last question, Michael. Uh, We normally wrap up with a Reagan lightning round, but today we'll we'll ask you to reflect on one element of Reagan's legacy, which seems quite uh, significant and relevant to your last set of points in the broader discussion we've had here, Reagan doctrine. What does the Reagan doctrine mean to you and, and how would that be applied as, as, as you just talked about the arsenal of democracy? So I think in
1: essence of what Ronald Reagan wanted to do during the Cold War and not to say he didn't make judgments about where we should spend scarce resources. And I'm not afraid to make some of these resource decisions either. But when we have sort of three revisionist powers who have a relationship with each other from three different vital regions of the world, I think it's time for us to stand up and take notice, not just that it's a three-headed snake, but that all of them at some level are in just some sort of uh, blanket cooperation with each other. That means we need to do more not less that means the united states needs to stand up we need a president who can talk to the american people motivate them and bring the congress along to stand up just like the united states has done so many times in its history and just how ronald reagan did it in the cold war
0: michael thanks for joining the show thanks so much roger We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.